You're listening to the Catholic Psyche Podcast. The Catholic Psyche Podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not intended to take the place of medical or mental health treatment, therapy, or diagnosis. You should always consult a trained mental health or medical professional for such treatment. You're listening to The Catholic Psyche. This is Chris. This is Sarah. Deacon Basil. And we have our special guest. I'm Pauline. Today we are bringing in an outsider into our inner circle to talk about something she knows more about than we do. Pauline, thanks for coming and talking to us about Montessori. Thanks for having me. We thought maybe we'd find some fun connections between Montessori education and the kinds of like psychology and psychotherapy that we all do day to day. Now, they're pretty separate, and I got to tell you, when you go to grad school for mental health counseling, you don't do any Montessori. I don't know. Do they at Regis? No. No. Deacon? Well, actually, a little bit in play therapy. Well, <laughs> aside from that, that's, that's no, really it's cool. Really, it's not really that much. That's really cool to hear, because I've long suspected that like the Montessori method is this treasure that the psychotherapy world is just waiting to uncover. And when they finally discover it, it's like that famous quote about cosmology. I forget who said it, but it's like after, after years, scientists and theoretical physicists have climbed the ladder of cosmology to find the place where the theologians had been sitting the whole time, referring to like the discovery that the universe has a beginning or whatever. Yeah, it's like Evagrius too. Well, Evagrius apparently knew everything. Um, but when, <laughs> when therapists, when psychologists finally open the treasure trove of Montessori method, they're going to discover that all of these things they've been like writing grants for and doing research on have already been discovered over 100 years ago by an Italian physician. So with that, maybe give us a little intro to Montessori. Um, yeah, so a little bit about Montessori. So... Is that a in name? Late... Who, <laughs> Who is that anyway? What does that come from? So it comes from Maria Montessori. If she had had it her way, it would have had a very, very long, long name. And people were like, no, what you've done, we're going to call it the Montessori method. She was like, fine, if you must. Um, but she was the first female doctor in Italy in the late 1800s. Um, and she never set out to change education or to even go into the educational field. But little by little, um, her circumstances led her to work with disadvantaged children at the time. And while working with them, she took the time to observe them and study what their needs were. And through her observations, she created different materials and different um, activities and a different environment for them to be able to thrive in. And she decided, all right, if it worked with, with uh, disadvantaged children, what will happen with um, the regular children. So she applied her discoveries to children um, at the time who were, well, they were the wild urchins in the streets of Rome. Um, and Seminarians? Oh, oh, yes, but earlier on. No, no. <laughs> Just the kids of Paris who had to work all day and had, you know, nothing better to do. Um, and within a year or two, there were kings and queens from all over the world coming to see what had happened. Mm -hmm. And so really what she did wasn't to create this new form of education, but to first observe the child and the needs of the child and the psychology of the child. Yeah. Um, and to offer what those needs are, uh, to, to really create an environment that um, meets those needs. And so that really re revolutionized education in many ways. So yeah. 
one of the, so she's the one who kind of was like, well, if you have young children in a classroom, you should give them things that are child sized. No one had done that before. No. Like, like today it seems just... intuitive because every, like most preschools have child sized furniture. Right. Absolutely. But no one knows that it was like, because Montessori took the time to be like, oh, hey, you want to like pour water, but you can't reach the pitcher. So then it falls everywhere. Let's make it like your size yeah. so you can reach it. So you can pour it yourself. You know, very thing, very simple things like that, that sound very common sense, but that just weren't a part of of education you know, at the of time. education or even what we adults think of because the needs of children seem so different from our needs now mm-hmm. for example you know how to open and close a door we all know how to do that i hope but for a two or three year old child they need to learn the steps so we have to break down this is how we open and close a door um, so it sounds common sense but we as adults don't necessarily think of that That's great. So yeah, more known maybe in the education world than in the therapy world, but even in education, you know, there are different, there are different, uh, educational philosophies and Montessori is one of them that differs greatly from, I guess what you call the mainstream. Mm -hmm. I know, I know for a fact you've experienced like parent surprise when they see a Montessori classroom for the first time. Like, Oh yeah. Like what, why, why aren't they in their desks? Mm-hmm. And why don't they have like any gold stars that they can redeem at the end of the day for like contingent rewards? And yeah. what is going on? Like maybe you want to talk about how Montessori is different. Sure. Uh, well, I think I, I like how you're bringing it up, like the parents surprise um, when they first visit a Montessori classroom. And one of the surprises that I love the most is they're like, but it's so quiet. You have 20 children who are ages three to six and it's so quiet, but they're Mm. all doing their own thing. How does that happen? That's when I think of the biggest surprises um, that parents find is that instead of me teaching to the whole class, I'll teach one-on-one. So while I'm teaching, let's say I'm teaching Sarah how to read a book. um, Deacon Basil is, you know, having snack and chatting away with Chris. And then there's another, there's another child who might be, you know, painting a picture um, another child who's learning how to build a tower out of cubes and things like that. And while, but I'm able to give that one-on-one attention to Sarah because all the other children have a foundation of how we function in the classroom. They mm. know what to choose. They know what's okay and what's not okay. Um, and also I have an assistant who is incredibly uh, needed. Yeah. She's there to to guide the other children who have a question. I was like, can I go to the bathroom? Can you read me a story? Who's able to really... I don't know. Can you go to the bathroom? Yes, you can. <laughs> <laughs> so, kind of practically, I mean, when perhaps I summon up an image, I mean, I've, I've been to your uh, preschool, but mm-hmm. when I summon up an image of, of, of a preschool room, how would yours look different than maybe one that might be at a different non-Montessori school? Sure. So um, that's a, yeah, because you can see the difference in like the philosophy and the approach, right, of me not teaching one-on-one, but more, not teaching to the whole group, sorry, but one-on-one. So that's that's a more philosophical difference, you could say. Um, I think a physical difference that you can see in a Montessori classroom is it feels very home-like. Mm. It's very comfortable and it's warm, but it's also not over filled. So for example, you don't have pictures all over the walls, right? Because that's very overwhelming to a small child. Overstimulating. Overstimulating, absolutely. It's overstimulating to adults. Absolutely, absolutely. Like if there's too much, I remember in high school, the classrooms that had too many posters, I would just not listen to the teacher and just read the poster. And and conversely, like I was thinking about this recently, um, like, you know, after like seeing friends who teach, they're setting up their classrooms. Like, I don't think I've ever 
looked at a poster and like learned new knowledge that I consolidated and like kept with me. You know what I mean? Oh, like no. I've never like look, like been bored at class and like looked at the poster of the periodic table and been like, all right, today's the day I memorize <laughs> all the elements. No, the posters no, or, did nothing. Or some really trite quote about like, try harder. You know? Like do your best. Yeah. There's like a picture of a dolphin doing right. his best. Like... Right. Oh my gosh. Those pictures were so distracting to me in school. Um, So you'll have a lot of things that are natural. You'll have plants, you'll have, um, you know, things that are made, that are beautiful. So objects from around the world made of wood, made of, you know, fabric. I have like little dolls from Asia, little dolls from France, just for the, just to create um, a different kind of environment. The aesthetic is important. It's not sterile and it's not over busy. Um, one of the big goals is really a beauty and order. Mm-hmm. So things to have a place. Um, traditional preschools will have, you know, different centers, different areas. And, and we do too. We have the, the primary um, areas of a Montessori classroom. So you have what we call practical life, which is learning everyday life skills. So for a three-year-old, it'll be learning how to pour water. Um, or how to button a shirt and things like that. For, you know, a five-year-old, it might be, you know, learning how to sew. So that's practical life. Then we have sensorial, which is activities and materials that refine the senses. So building a tower from the biggest to the smallest cube. Sorting sounds, which one is loudest, which one is quietest, uh, to build up towards music. Right. Um, So you... And then you have math, which is obviously, you know, the study of numbers, going from the concrete to the abstract and combining the two. And you have language, learning letter sounds, learning to read and to write. You have, um, in our classroom, we're really blessed because we have Catechesis of the Good Shepherd, which is the Montessori Montessori way of teaching the Catholic faith. Um, And then we also have science and cultural studies and things like that. So we have different areas and different stations, you could say, but... Children are never um, confined. Told, confined. Exactly. You're not like you have to be in this station at this time. The classroom is, is a whole. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have a child who can go do a math work and learn about multiplication and then go learn about the parable of the mustard seed and then have snack. So, so it's very Have a fluid. mustard snack. Have a to mustard really snack. consolidate the message. <laughs> Divide yeah. mustard seed. Yeah, yeah. Learn how to share. Um, <laughs> A lot of a lot of adults might be surprised to hear the words beauty and order. And in particular, I think a lot of adults in this culture would be surprised to learn that two and three three year olds crave order. Mm. They have a desire for order. I mean, can you speak to that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So one of the many discoveries that Montessori made um, is what's called sensitive periods. So children birth to age six go through some very specific periods where they're sensitive to something, such as order or language or um, socialization, math, things like that. Uh, small objects, you'll see, you know, an 18-month-old will be obsessed with the carpet to find the tiniest speck you can possibly imagine. That's a need that they have. That's something they're very sensitive and to. And then they put it in their mouths and you have to fish it out. And I'm sorry, sorry. Also, that's true. <laughs> that's the learning of the senses. If I don't know how that speck tastes, then I don't truly know the speck's essence. You know what I mean? <laughs> that's hilarious. Very Aristotelian, these kids. <laughs> but, um, so, the sensitive period for order is is very, very important, especially for the young, young child. Um, you know, age birth to two and, and even later on, but birth to two will be, the big focus will be about the order of life. So 
this is what happens when I'm hungry. This is what happens when we go outside. You know, that that routine. Predictability. That, exactly. Yeah. So you might have a, a, a two-year-old who will have a fit for no for what appears to be no reason. And you're like, why are you throwing a fit right now? What's going on? And then when you think back on it, you're like, oh, I put my jacket on the bench instead of putting it in the closet. And that disturbed the child's sense of order. And it's like, okay, I love now example. I don't understand the world. What is going on? Like, you can't do that to me. <laughs> Pauline, we should have brought like a bell that we ring every time. Like, ding, 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 something <laughs> that psychologists discovered much later. And, you know, we'd, we'd stack them up at the end and count, like, how many things Montessori got to first. This one's really important, though. Um, think about the attachment work of, like, John Bowlby and Mary Ainsworth. When, you, you, and, 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 and even before that, the um, object relations psychoanalysts who talked about the way that young children, that infants... Um, need to have their needs met, in particular their emotional needs, and then the drastic toll of having neglectful, abusive, or inconsistent parenting. The effect that that chaos has on the developing child is essentially, you know, it destroys or greatly damages that child's sense of order. And so this is Maria Montessori. Before anyone had ever heard of the term attachment theory saying, yeah, like when the infant is hungry, he must be fed. When the infant mm -hmm, is tired, mm -hmm. he must sleep. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. Am I wrong? No, no, you're totally right. I, absolutely. And it's really fascinating to see in the classroom too because every material has a place. And and we focus a lot on keeping the classroom environment as beautiful as possible, which sometimes is not my forte, but you know, it's so important because it teaches the children that when they come, they they feel safe. They're like, I know where everything is going to be. I know where I'm what I'm going to use, where I'm going to put it back. It creates that safety net. At school, too, because to be able to learn, you need to be able to feel safe and loved and to enjoy learning. Otherwise, it doesn't, you know, if you hate learning, then you're not going to learn. It's not going to stay with you. So, so yeah. And another way you see order is kind of from the teacher side. So we teach everything from the simple to the complex, from, but we teach everything from, from left to right. From the more known to the less known. Yeah, yeah. The... And from, from left to right to kind of just build that sense of order and... <laughs> There's a lot of um, underlying goals with Montessori that aren't necessarily told to the children. You're not going to say, well, you're doing, you know, you're pouring from the left pitcher to the right pitcher to prepare your eyes for reading and writing. We're not telling them that, but that's just something that's wow. in place to build that sense of order. So deliberate. As they make, exactly, as they make Nothing sense of Nothing is haphazard. You're not like, oh exactly. yeah, just whatever, pick a pitcher, kid, just pour the water. You're like, yeah, so exactly. systematic. Exactly. Yeah. And, and that's really when you have that sense of quietness that parents find in the classroom is because the children's needs are being met in a way that helps them make sense of things. So then when they come in, the children are focused, they're happy, there's joy, there's just contentment. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's beautiful. <laughs> and it's everything my childhood self wants in a classroom because I was so bored in school. I can Amen. understand that, yeah. Preach. Yeah. yeah. Well, probably because when you wanted to do art, you had to do math. math. And when you I wanted... math. Yeah. And I remember this very vividly when I was in second grade and struggling with multiplication, the teacher had to take me aside like for several sessions and she tried to work with me. And when I would just, I would be taking too long, she Ugh. would just give me this dirty look, like this very stern face glaring at me. It's like, why are you looking at me like that? Ding, ding, ding. So Maria Montessori <laughs> said you should never, ever shame the child Absolutely. for what they can't do. Ever. And 
like it seems like a small thing, but we all remember those moments from our school days oh, when yeah. like we couldn't do it and it was like so obvious to everyone else and it like really actually hurts. And Maria Montessori, without the research to back her up, except her own empirical observations, realized that children um, children don't really need to be glared at. They can kind of figure out when they can't do something. Yeah, absolutely. So they have, absolutely. right, isn't there the term in Montessori when your tools have control of error? Exactly. So a lot of the Montessori materials that we use in the classroom have that, have a control of error. So for example, we have a material, try to imagine it, it's uh, a long block of wood and inside you have different size cylinders that go from the biggest to the smallest. So if a two or three year old is doing that material, there's a control of error there present. They don't have to be told you're doing it wrong right? or even retaught because they can see that when they try to put the biggest peg, the biggest cylinder in the smallest hole, it's just not going to work. So they're able to, to learn how to correct themselves and how to uh, problem solve on their own. If there is an error that's made, for example, a child is writing a word um, and it's misspelled, I'm not going to go, well, that's not how we spell it. I'm going to be, I'm going to take a note, me as the teacher, as the scientist, as the observer to be like, oh, this is a, this is a rule of language that this child doesn't know yet. So or they've the overgeneralized, you know, exactly, like, exactly. Um, they've overgeneralized oh, like, many. um, I before E except after C. Yeah. Or, or they hear like, um, past tense, you know, like, um, made, I made this, you know, I, I played, I played with him and then like you know, the past tense of like understand would be, I understayed or something. You know, mm -hmm. they, they apply a rule more generally than it actually does apply in exactly. the English language. Exactly. Or even, you know, sometimes spelling frog and it'll be spelled fog, mm -hmm. you know, and sometimes there are some much funnier ones, but Wait, then, it, then it teaches me to, to relearn this lesson with them. So then it's always coming from, let's learn about this, not from, well, you did this wrong. You know, it's it's a it's a very wholesome um, way of learning. I feel the same as Sarah. Like I hated math; it was the worst thing in the world. And when I did my Montessori training, I was like, "Oh, well, now that I can manipulate math, it makes sense and it's awesome, and I want to learn more." Like I objectively understand that mathematics is intellectually beautiful. Like I think the Fibonacci sequence is one of the coolest things in the oh, universe. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh -huh. I'm, I'm with you on that. One. This is like an ancient <laughs> esoteric thing. You should be all over this, Deacon. It's so cool. I bet you Evagrius wrote about. He probably did. Yeah. Well, the Fibonacci, not Fibonacci, but like harmony of the spheres. I mean, if stuff. it wasn't, if it was enlightened and and you know. All right, all right. But yeah, math was. We beautiful. Need to start a, we need to start a drinking game where every time Evagrius is mentioned, we need to do a shot. Okay. Somebody do that. That's gonna be Except it, it'll be really like hard. completely in Deacon Basil's control because he could just like always mention Evagrius and then we'd be out of luck or in luck. Maybe we can get back to the actual topic at hand. I'm curious, Pauline, how does Montessori, you know, deal with the intellectual life of the child? Tell me more. And, you know, how does, how are the emotions and the um, emotional life of the child involved within the classroom. Mm. Oh, I love that. So I think one of the, one of the many things um, I love about Montessori, which is how I start most sentences when I talk about Montessori, is um, that it's not just a school or a classroom, but it's really a community. And it has that family feel to it. We have eight children ages three to six within the classroom, at least for my own classroom. Each Montessori classroom, different ages go with together. So you have the six to nine year olds will be together to nine to 12, just because of the fact that they learn similarly. 
anyway, back on topic. So with three to six year olds, we live in a community together. So if a child is wants to have snack, but they're already the snack table is full, we usually have two children have snack um, together at the same time. So they learn the art of conversation. And so the spot isn't open right now. They have to wait. So it's learning. It's like, but I really want this right now. It's right. like, well, I understand. But right now we have to wait. So what, what are we going to do when we wait? Um, we only have one material of one um, set of each material. So if a child is building one of the most Mon Montessori well-known materials, the pink tower. Sorry, I'm mixing my words up because I'm excited about speaking and <laughs> I hope you can take this part out um <laughs> definitely not oh no <laughs> so when you have one child building the pink tower one of the most famous Montessori materials another child who wants to do it has to either wait their turn or ask if they can join that child so we do this through grace and courtesy lessons so we learn the basics of how to express our needs how to express our emotions so they'll learn to put their hand on the friend's shoulder and say, can I work with you? And the other child is able to say, yes, please, or no, thank you, or please watch. That's very powerful, that just being able to say no, thank you. Got to teach kids that. Well, that's a skill that most adults don't most have. Most adults don't know we, how we to say no. We don't know how to say no. We don't oh, know no how to say... No is bad. No is mean. You don't want to be mean, do you? Well, exactly. And, Can you and do this like completely unrealistic thing for me in a short time frame? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, totally. I'll do that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right? Like overextending ourselves and not saying no. Exactly, boundaries. exactly. Not having boundaries. So so teaching young children to have boundaries. Ding, um, ding. And, also to, <laughs> and also being able to teach them the language of our emotions and our needs. So for example, it's like, hey, I can see this really upset you. You know, um, I can see that when somebody had snack before you, you felt really angry about that. So what can we do about feeling angry? Right, and... Uh, ding, 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 ding. I oh, think yeah. that's right back to that that kind of modern um, modern research around emotional uh, coaching and emotional intelligence and how that has really kind of, you know, come out really within the last 30 years. Yeah. Mm. And uh, very recently. And, and the importance of kind of looking at the, the child as, as a human. Yeah, with um, emotions. With emotions. And yet still also needing sort of discussion as to what these emotions that they might be feeling are and Absolutely. how to kind of a training on, okay, like this is anger, this is sadness, even though they might actually look pretty similar at times. Totally. You know? And that's oh, yeah. kind of in that, in that particularly John Gottman's with his, with his emotional coaching method. I mean, mm. really kind of relates back to that. Yeah. Also yeah. it dispels a common Montessori myth, which is from roll Montessori is too individualistic. It's all about kids working on their own and they don't do enough socializing. They don't interact. If my kid goes to Montessori school, he's not going to have any social skills. Right, which is completely wrong because while you'll have children who are able, who will work on their own, and because each child is focusing on their own academic goals, right? Not each child is going to ever be at the same place academically mm -hmm. um, or socially or emotionally. But by being in that community, by being in that environment, they naturally interact with each other. For example... Um, the other day in the classroom, we had some kiddos who were playing with music instruments and they were just going Ooh. to town with it. Exactly. You would Love have loved it. it. But then I had one kid who was trying to do division who walked over to them and be like, hey, could you be a little more quiet? I can't concentrate. And this is a five-year-old, right? Going up to Amazing. their peers, being able to express that. And or it's beautiful. A five-year-old doing division. Well, also, yeah, that... but that's easy. <laughs> 
No. It is no. 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 This is why God invented calculators. No, no, no. Because when you have it hands on, it is so easy. You have, I my, one of my favorite things in the classroom as a teacher is when I have four and five year olds coming up to me is like, Hey, Miss Pauline, can I square a number? Can I cube a number? I'm like, Yeah, absolutely. Because we have the hands on material that makes it simple. It's beautiful. This is this is a um, backwards ding. Um, mm. Because this is one that some of the ancients got, uh, was lo- this principle was lost and then apparently rediscovered by Maria mm. Montessori. But th- there are different ways of looking at math. And very briefly, the platonic view is that like math exists somewhere out there, somewhere in the world of forms. Mm. And for Aristotle, math is quantity. Math is very tangible, concrete, empirical. And uh, Deacon Basil is doing some like miming right now to illustrate my points. He's showing that he has two hands. And that's how we, right? That's how we get numbers is we look into the world and see that things are grouped in quantities. Absolutely. And so your kids learn, before they learn um, d- division or multiplication, they learn how to group things by quantities and see that they can add or take away quantities of objects. Yeah. First, you have to know what the quantity of four is before you can understand the symbol of four, right? So first you have the, the physical quantity, then you learn the symbol, then you put them together. So you have the, the concrete, the abstract, and then the combination of the two. Beautiful. So when you start that so young, it makes everything make so much more sense. For example, the concept of zero to us adults is like, of course we all know what zero means, but a three-year-old doesn't. So being able to teach a child the concept of zero, zero means nothing, is, is huge. And then we have a whole lesson with it and it's always a blast. But, um, I feel like yeah. I need to go back to preschool. I know. I that's how go. I learned math is by doing my Montessori training. It's like going back to preschool. That's when I, when it all made sense. I, I want to go, you know, it's like sometimes people are like, oh, I just want to go back and get like my second bachelor is like, I want to go back and get my second preschool yeah. and like, a, and actually learn math this time around. You're welcome. Anytime. I love it. Well, you know, we've, we've, <laughs> we've hung out in the classroom together. I, I did some music teaching. Yeah, Montessori yeah. School, so, yeah. Um, let's see. Where else can we go with Montessori? I think I think one of the big concerns that I have is people listening to this and being like, "Well, but my kids don't go to a Montessori school. Are they missing out?" Good point. Uh, yes, and, and there yes, are situations. Are. <laughs> well, that might be, but but you know, there are situations where Montessori schools are just not available or affordable, um, or affordable. Or, you know, people might be in a really wonderful school um, that does not have a Montessori program and, mm-hmm. and, and they're established in it. What are kind of the insights that those parents can take mm-hmm. out of Great what question. we're talking about and, and implement them into their parenting? Oh, I love that. Because I think I think Montessori, while you often see it in a classroom setting, in a school setting, it, it's much more than that. It's, a, it's a, an understanding of the human person. Mm-hmm. And what I love to tell parents is that it's so important for our culture to remember that parents are the primary educators. So me as a teacher at Sophia, my, I'm just there to be a support to the parents and to give them the tools and obviously to teach their children when they're in my care um, and guide the children. But I think the most important thing I would say to parents is it's okay to take a step back and just watch what's going on. Um, and to take your time. So for example, it can be so hard when you're rushing around at home and you have to get to church or you have to go to the grocery store, you have an appointment and your three-year-old is refusing to put on their shoes. So you just do it for them mm-hmm. or you, you know, you zip up their coats or you they get them dressed over in the morning. and you clean it up. Exactly. Like, because we're busy and I completely understand that. So what I would tell parents is it's okay to step back and to take your time. So observe what's going on, right? It's taking too long to put on their shoes. Then when it's not time to leave, when it's not time to go somewhere, 
just ha- make it a game. Like, hey, we're going to practice putting our shoes on today. Let's see how you do it. I'm going to do it with you. Or it's time to go to church. Let's have let's make sure we've practiced how to put on a coat and how to zip it up before it's time to go to church so you don't have to rush. Um, or if, you know, if you make a spill, no big deal. Let's put some cloth near you so that you can clean up your own mess and have that sense of responsibility and sense of ownership because children birth to age six, first they say, let me do it myself. And then they want to say, trust me to do it myself. So they have that desire to do things on their own. And sometimes that can really get in our way as adults. Did you see that um, NPR article about um, like Central American children doing chores? Yes. Yes. You sent that to me. It's like, ding. (laughs) Ding, It's so redundant. (laughs) Um, uh, It's, you know, some anthropologists looked at why, you know, children from Central and Latin America seem to have less trouble doing household chores than like Western affluent American children. Mm. And few, few reasons. One is that they were given a chance to make mistakes. Like, like I, I work with families that are like, oh no, 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 no. My kid's not going to carry the dishes or wash them. Not until they're eight or nine. I, I just don't want to go buy new dishes every week, you know? Mm-hmm. I don't want them to break stuff. And then in these families, it was like, yeah, the first few times the kids carried the dishes, they broke them. And now they're three and they can, like, wash the dishes. You know what I mean? Absolutely. So Absolutely. same with all the chores. They were just, Essentially, it was that same principle of taking a step back and letting the child figure it out on their own, working mm-hmm. through their mistakes. Also, community. They were involved centrally in the tasks of the household. So sometimes what you'll see in, like, you know, affluent American families is like, oh, yeah, we got to, like, make up something distracting for our kid to do while we do, like, the real important family stuff. So, like, throw a game at the kid or make up a chore that's completely non-functional and doesn't actually contribute to the good of the household in any meaningful way. But these, like, Central American families were, like, letting the kids do things that actually helped the house and they developed a sense of helpfulness. And so later in life, they didn't rely on positive reinforcement or extrinsic rewards. They relied on the fact that they felt helpful, like they were making some Mm -hmm. meaningful Mm -hmm. contribution to something bigger than themselves. Right. And that's just how you live in the, in your family, right? So making, making your community, your family life that involves everyone, you know, a two-year-old can match socks, you know, a two-year-old and a three-year-old, they can fold, you know, napkins and things like that. Or, you know, the dirty towels after they've been cleaned. There, there are so many ways that the children can be a part of the family life. We're, just... we're over here like, who are these savant children, right, Sarah? Oh, no. Uh, it's, oh, no, no. it's easy. Was, you just have to show them. This, was, this is also the Midwest, but instead of, you know, expect, like, allowing children to make mistakes, you're, allowed, you're expected to know how to do everything perfectly the first time. Yeah, mistakes sure, are bad is probably the, the underlying yeah. message of a lot of families. Yeah. yeah. But no. So, so I think, yeah, I think just to break it down is just take a step back, see what the need is, see what's maybe missing and allow the children to practice first, to learn the skill, learning how to greet someone who comes to visit or, you know, learning how to set the table. They, they're totally capable. There's a great video online of um, twin two-year-old girls who are clean, doing the dishes and putting it all in the dishwasher. And it takes forever because they're going at their own two-year-old pace but then in the background, you see mom, you know, drinking her drink, and it's fine. <laughs> and it was red wine. No, um, <laughs> And no. the kids were like, would you, mommy, would you like a refill? <laughs> <laughs> mama. No. Mama, mama. And maybe I can speak as a parent here. As, as, sure, you know, please. I, 
when I hear you say that, mm -hmm. um, t two things come up for me. Number one, um, the better part of me says, wow, I really feel the need to do that um, and, and want to really work in that regard. The uh, less, perhaps, uh, virtuous part of me goes, how the heck am I ever going to get my kids to do that? I have a hundred different things. I come sure. home at the end of a long day of, of you know, work and, and, you know, so I think for me, it's important to say from a parental perspective, yeah, yeah. it gets back to that sort of basic concept of, of parenting that it's good enough parenting. You know, you're not going to be perfect. Yeah. There are going to be situations where you're probably not going to be the best parent in the world. Oh, There's sure. There's going to be times where you, you're going to make mistakes. I've right. Made, I've made a hundred mistakes before I've even left for work um, in the morning. You <laughs> Same know? principle holds for parents too with respect right. to mistakes. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Because that's, that's exactly it. You know, in the classroom, the children are allowed to make mistakes. Then they're not like, you know, put down on, by their, they're not um, shamed because of their mistakes. Right. It's not like your child is going to be like, well, daddy here, all the things you did before we left. I mean, I don't know. What? Maybe, maybe not. <laughs> My child might. But, uh, maybe you're doing something conditioning, right. Conditioning, conditioning. <laughs> um, <laughs> but what I would say to that is just the way we Montessori teachers learn to treat the children, we need to learn to treat ourselves too, right? So within the classroom, I make mistakes and I'll tell the kids I made a mistake, you know, and, I'll, and I'll, exactly, it's modeling. And so you can at home, it. and as a parent, it's very important to model too, because let's say, you know, again, back to the shoes example, you, didn't, you know, you weren't putting your shoes on, I put them on for you, we got in the car, Be, uh, kids upset, kids crying, mom's upset. She's almost crying. But but then just having that time after everybody calms down, just be like, hey, you know, I didn't love it when this happened because this is how I felt. How did you feel? You know, right. having that conversation. But not necessarily right in the moment when everybody's freaking out because right. being a part of a family, just like being a part of a classroom, we're all human and we're all in this together. So yeah. I think it's very important to, for parents to remember to be gentle with themselves too. Beautiful. And That's... to know that you know your child best okay. and to also follow your gut. Yeah. Um, because I think so many parents feel that Pinterest culture pressure of like, I have to be the parent, perfect parent. My child has to be perfectly entertained at all times, be fluent in five languages before they go into kindergarten, you know, all these things. And it's like, no, just no. be, just yeah. be bored together. We talked about self-compassion in that first podcast and mm. like, that's another one. Um, and then the other thing that comes to mind, Deacon, when you say good enough parent is, you know, D.W. Winnicott. I use this all the time with my families I work with. I tell that they say, they get down on themselves. They say, I just, I'm worried. I don't think I can be the perfect parent for this kid. I'll tell these parents, I'll tell these parents, you know, the, probably the greatest um, child psychoanalyst of the 20th century, D.W. Winnicott said, what a child needs to develop properly is a good enough mother. And certainly you can extend that, you know, father as well. Sure, sure. And what that means is that it's not a, a parent who never makes mistakes, but it's a parent who makes mistakes and then does repair after the rupture. And this happens all the time in therapy. There are sessions in therapy when we miss important things that clients say because we're zoned out. We can't be fully present. We accidentally say something insensitive and the client, you know, recoils in horror. That's okay. Actually, that's part of the process of healing. And then what happens is there's repair that comes after that. And then the relationship is stronger because of it. Here. Well, sure. And I, and I think that's the thing too. I would say to parents, even if your child doesn't get to go into a Montessori classroom, that's okay. Because yes, yeah, sometimes it's not available. Sometimes it's unfortunately too pricey, which is a very hard reality. State um, subsidized public Montessori. 
There's in all some. 50 states. Hey, Boom. let's go for that. It's my proposal. <laughs> um, so I, I would recommend for parents to look into Montessori, to, to read her texts, to uh, I'd highly recommend E.M. Standing's book, uh, Montessori, Her Life and Works, because it really takes all of her books, which sometimes can be a little hard to read, and condenses it into a really beautiful read that talks about freedom, independence, discipline, rewards, punishment, um, just all those things that we obviously deal with in the classroom, but that are also dealt with at home. And it so I, so I think parents and teachers, we need to become observers and scientists, just like Montessori herself was, and let the child speak to us and guide us. Uh, Montessori is big on the phrase of follow the child. You know, the child will tell you what's going on. We just have to slow down and get down to the child's rhythm to be able to see what that is. And be sure to check the show notes for those specific links and, and Absolutely. so Absolutely. We'll Many links. We'll send you stuff. <laughs> I, I'm curious, kind of, you know, we've heard from a Montessori side. Chris, I'm curious how you see, as, as someone that works at Mount Tabor uh, with kids yeah. and kind of in this realm of, of play therapy, music therapy, yep. how do these principles kind of come up in a practical way within, within the therapeutic experience? Yeah, so many. So follow the child is something you're taught when you study play therapy, but Montessori is never attributed um, play is the work of childhood is something you're taught when you study play therapy, but Montessori is never attributed. And certainly you learn how to address the child's developmental age, which is something Montessori would be very interested in. Absolutely. So th- those are the principles I use in my therapy sessions. I mean, you know, first of all, I'm going to want to see like what the child's chronological age and what their developmental slash emotional age is. And we're going to, you know, adjust interventions accordingly. Second of all, if I'm doing a true child-centered play therapy session, I'm going to be non-directive. I'm not going to come to the session with pre-planned activities. I'm going to actually let the child decide what they want to play with and how. And the rationale behind that theory is that the child knows inside, the child knows what she or he needs in order to heal, just like the child knows what she or he needs in order to learn. And so the play typically is thematically rich and the child is going to be working through their issues through play. And then I'm there as a guide or a facilitator, much the same way a Montessori teacher sees themselves as a guide or facilitator. Also, um, I'm going to be very mindful of the way I use praise. I'm not going to be slapping good jobs on this kid left and right, like you might see in a mainstream American school. I'm going to be trying to encourage the child to develop an intrinsic sense of reward, like a sense that they... They feel accomplished for having done something, not because they got a gold star, but because they did it. And that's, again, exactly what you see in a Montessori classroom. Like, Absolutely. Pauline's doing, like, invisible claps and snaps, so, like, I'm getting <laughs> positively reinforced right now. So, not because of what I'm saying, but because I'm getting a good job from her. No, exactly. And, and it's like, um, you know, I'm going to be describing what the child is doing to help them develop an awareness of themselves and their emotions in the same way that you might say, oh, you know, you look upset right now that you can't go have snack. All that kind of stuff. That's called tracking in play therapy. And... I mean, I could go on, but really, I think follow the child captures all of that. So any therapist worth their salt who works with kids needs to like commit that to memory. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and that there are, I think it's very important to say there are very, very, very quality and effective interventions that can happen um, in therapy with very young children. Yes, um, yeah, I think for sure. Very important to say, mm-hmm. because I think very often, you know, I think the modern mindset of of kids are not really people 
um, that Montessori fights so much against, oh, and play therapy fights so much against as well. That it, that, that that working with kids who have emotional struggles is really rich uh, work and, and totally important, and, and and that is what you know. So we your, do your specialization here um, at right. Yeah, I've worked with kids for years. That's exactly what we do. And and one more that comes to mind, and then I'm going to bounce a question on on all of you here. But um, the senses. Working with the senses. This is maybe the, for me, maybe even the biggest one, the biggest area of overlap. And it actually concerns my three principal interests, like Montessori, <laughs> child therapy, and Thomas Aquinas. Surprise. What? All knowledge begins in the senses. Montessori knew that. That's another like backwards ding. Um, she must have read some Thomas Aquinas when she was in Italy. Oh, yeah. Uh, so in Montessori school, you don't learn through computer screens or through worksheets. You learn through engaging your tactile sense by feeling the sand and writing in it. You work through, um, you know, seeing these aesthetically rich rooms and aesthetically rich objects. You work through listening to the different sounds and timbres of the bells. You work through your olfactory sense by smelling things from around the world and and even your proprioceptive and your vestibular sense. What am I missing here? Taste. I don't know. Snacks. We'll try foods from around the world. I you know, love things it. Things like that. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and it's that, you know, the other thing that's amazing is that a lot of kids I see who go through Montessori school have amazing um, sensory discrimination abilities. Like, you know, when you hold up two, like, to me, two identical weights, they're like, oh, yeah, like, this one's heavier. Can't you tell? I'm like, no, because I didn't go to Montessori <laughs> school and, like, haven't refined that sense yet, <laughs> you know? That's so true. It's so true. It's amazing to me seeing children receive that kind of education so early on that I learned as an adult. And it helped me a lot as an adult, but one way is discriminating between colors, shades of colors. Mm -hmm. The kids can sometimes see shades of colors that I'm like, I really can't tell. What but are you I talking know, about? Yeah. yeah, exactly. So so it's it's really fascinating. When the world opens up to you when you have that, when you, because our senses are so important. I mean, this is so incarnational. This is going to bring me to my question. Like in our Eastern Christian worldview, Deacon, like we, we don't, we don't just have this like, automatic link between our psyche and God. We need, we, we need that mediated through icons, right? We need mm. it through material, through material images of God's glory. And so in the divine liturgy, all five of our senses, well, you know, seven, if you include, include a proprioception and in, 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 uh, <laughs> vestibular, all of our senses are active. So I'm wondering maybe if we can all speak, uh, starting with you, Pauline, to the um, connection between Montessori and the Catholic faith. Oh my gosh. I mean, there's a lot there. A really quick, I'd, I'd also add Aristotle was a big part of Montessori's work. You you were mentioning um, Aristotle earlier of just, it's hands-on, it's tactile. Aristotle right? and Aquinas um, are two just, peas in a pod. So exactly, yeah. exactly, exactly. Um, so I think, so just a little bit of background. Currently I teach at the school that I started with, Irene O'Brien. Which is called? Whoop, whoop, Irene. Uh, which is called Sophia Montessori Academy. And we are a Catholic Montessori school in the Byzantine tradition. And I, it kind of just happened that we um, got connected with Holy Protection and Father Michael Lachlan and Deacon Basil. And it just made so much sense to, to combine that Eastern tradition with Montessori because of that, um, that appeal to the senses. And I think one of the big beauties there is that with Montessori, you really see that the human child is both human in body and human in spirit, mm -hmm. right? We're not, it's not two different things. It's not more human, more body, more spirit. It's it's really a unified whole. And I think in our Catholic faith, we really find that. Oh, yeah. And 
Um, so, so that would be my, my short answer of just, of just having that, that whole person, um, approach. Right. It's and, a Catholic and, anthropology. Exactly. It teaches Absolutely. to the person the way the church understands the person. Exactly. And, and, and Maria Montessori was herself a devout Catholic, was she not? Yes, she absolutely was. She was um, very deeply Catholic. And you can really see that in her approach and her philosophy. You know, if we look at the catechism's definition of freedom, you know, you have to have freedom is having reason and having, um, I have the definition somewhere, but you, you really see that connection of Montessori's work with the Catholic faith of, yeah, freedom, how we, how we learn, how we work, our own growth, and also, like, our relationship with God. You know, God is, is, is kind and gentle and loving, but there are also, you know, realities and consequences. So, in a Montessori classroom, if a child is carrying something and it breaks, it breaks. That happens. We're not going to protect it from breaking by only giving them things that are never going to break. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're, there's real life um, there. And I had another point, but I lost it. That's okay. Well, I think, you know, one of the really beautiful things that has happened between, you know, our parish, mm-hmm. Holy Protection, and, and uh, Sophia Montessori has been how the faith has been really come alive in the lives of, of the children. And, mm. um, I mean, maybe maybe you can speak a little bit about um, when the bishop came and visited and kind of uh, what my, that great story about that that. Uh, boy who was there and kind of expressed yeah yeah it was it was really wonderful um so we had quite the long journey to be able to open and we opened on february 12th um of just this this year 2018 yeah Yeah, just now and right before we opened we were blessed to have bishop john come and visit our school which you know we're finally putting the last touches on our bathrooms were finally built this is Bishop John Pazak of, of our eparchy, the eparchy of Phoenix, which is part of the Ruthenian. Very complicated. He's a great bishop. He came to visit from out of town. Amen to that. And uh, so when he came to visit, we were able to show him the school. And it was just such a blessing because one of my students that I had had for three years was there. And pretty much I, he led the tour of the school. He showed Bishop everything. And um, the most beautiful aspect of it was when he showed him the map of Jerusalem, which is a work from the Catechesis of the Good Shepherd where the children um, recreate, you know, using um, blocks and, and um, miniatures of the city of Jerusalem. He recreated it on, on the rug and was telling Bishop John about, well, this is the cynical where the Last Supper happened and this is, you know, Mount Calvary where Jesus died and the Tomb of the Resurrection. And he's sharing all these things that he knows from having learned them. Um, to Bishop John, who obviously knows them as well, but it was just so beautiful to see the child become the teacher. Um, and also Bishop John is very, very tall. And so having a five-year-old giving him the lesson, oh, six-year-old, I'm sorry, uh, was just really absolutely adorable. Um, but yeah, it was, it was the child showing him his learning and his space and his school. It wasn't about Irene and I's school and our work. It was more about yeah, the child taking over and, and guiding the adult into his world and his life. And I think that's that's perhaps another point um, in particular is that, you know, those who might not be able to send their child to a Montessori school, mm-hmm. um, there there is a large-scale program um, called Catechies of the Good Shepherd, which implements Montessori into both a Roman and a Byzantine context. Um, Absolutely. You know, Sophia Montessori is working on, you know, developing that aspect of the Byzantine side yep, quite a bit, yep. but but the Roman program is very well developed and, and phenomenal. And many parishes, at least here in Denver and, and around the world, really, um, a lot of parishes have catechesis of the Good Shepherd available. 
And I would also say to, to parents, you know, if you can have catechesis of the Good Shepherd, do everything you can to, to be there, to, to make it happen for, for your children, but also for you. I remember doing my training for catechesis of the Good Shepherd, and I grew so much in my own faith. Learning my faith from the viewpoint of a child is incredibly beautiful. Mm. Um, so I would say do whatever you can to be able to have that. And if you can't, do it in your home. You yeah. know, finding there are so many resources online we'll share with you. Yeah. So there you go. I think we touched on like all the important themes of this podcast. Well, I think I think one last thing that we do need to touch on is uh, how do they find out about you and the great work that's happening at your school? And, oh gosh, <laughs> how can they? How can we support that? Maybe they're here in Denver who are interested. You know, tell, yeah. tell us. Yeah. All right. So well, we're a brand new school and we're um, here in Denver, Sophia Montessori Academy. You can find us at sophiamontessori.com on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, please follow us. I love to share pictures of what's going on in the classroom to kind of give parents ideas of what they can do at home as well. Um, and just to share the, the beauty of having a deeply Catholic environment for um, children within the Montessori work of education. And um, you, we are always in need of help and support. So uh, Volunteer if you want. Volunteer, right? yeah. Chris if you have a talent, been, you can yeah. share that. Is that yeah. Sophia, Sophia, the Greek word for wisdom, right? Yes, Sophia is the Greek word for wisdom. Um, so our name can be a lot of things. Yeah, so. <laughs> That's philosophy for those that, yeah. <laughs> um, it's also named for uh, St. Sophia, who was the mother of faith, hope, and charity. So just a lot of different reasons around the name. Um, but yeah, contact us. We'd love to, you know, if you are interested in coming and visiting the school, please do. The children are completely blasé about having visitors. They're so used to it. Uh, people will come and see what it's like, you know, hear the silence um, of the children working. And and for financial support, I mean, if that's available, <laughs> she's too humble to say that. But, I mean, this is a very important mission of the church. Um, it's a mission of my church, but, you know, it's an important <laughs> mission of the church. And I think, you know, those who are able, I think, you know, can... That, please, that would be amazing. Please do, yeah. yeah, yeah. We definitely. Um, our vision is not to stop where we're at now. Right now, we have one classroom of children, children ages three to six. We can have uh, about twenty-eight children enrolled. Our vision is to go up to high school. So every year, we want to grow with the children that we currently have. You know, make a pledge monthly. That would help us tremendously to uh, pay off our debt from getting started and to build up being able to grow with our children uh, to really give them the best education that we can. Because Montessori really did something pretty darn amazing, and we want to be able to pass that on. And we do believe that it is incredible and can go up to eight, to high school and really form children who, who can change the world, who can grow to their um, God-given full potential and, and really make a difference. And I think, you know, the last thing that I would want to say on this is yeah. just how much I personally appreciate what you've done mm. yeah. for the parish, for the yeah. school, for the city here in Denver. Mm. Um, for all the children. And all the children who have, have really come alive and um, continue to grow in the faith. And it's, it's um, I, I am so very appreciative of that. And I think the way in which the Lord moves through you is an inspiration for all of us. Gosh. Yeah. Thank you all so much. Um, and again, also a big thank you to Chris, who has volunteered a lot, and Sarah, who's volunteered a lot. She helped us clean so many times and for Deacon for just being such a big part of it. So thank you guys all so much. Um, it's been a pleasure to chat with you and I can't wait to hear the podcast. Adios. Adios.